Following the murder of George Floyd, there were anti-racism demonstrations seen across the world in 2020 and numerous frank and honest discussions about racial equality. However, no federal legislation to dismantle, to dismantle systematic racism was signed into law. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the George Floyd Policing Act both died in Congress. To make matters worse, 28 states have passed critical race theory laws that essentially ban the teaching of black history in public schools. The question is, where do we go from here? Is all hope lost? And I'll start with Mr. Malouf. Thank you. So the simple answer is no, not all hope is lost. Um, it was about a year ago when public defenders across the country got together and at exactly noon across the country, we're talking about hundreds of public defender offices, we got in front of the courthouse footsteps and we demonstrated and we took eight minutes of silence um, honoring, I should say honoring, but acknowledging George Floyd's murder, because that's exactly what, what it was, a murder. Um, it, it seems that every time we move two steps forward, someone is more than willing to take us two steps backwards. And hopefully we need to stay woke and know that we have a long way to go for equality and equal treatment uh, in this country. So the question, where do we go from here? Um, we need to continue to seek out allies. And remember, this is something that we have to remember. Slavery did not end through diplomacy. Slavery ended through war, through bloodshed. Mentally, we need to remember that in order to move forward, we are at war. And mentally, we need to be at war against uh, racism. So those are my thoughts. So not all hope is lost. We just need to keep fighting. Thank you, Mr. Malouf. I remember that. Uh, we did that in Solano County as well. Our office participated in that eight seconds. Um, I'll turn it over to Mr. Burris. Uh, Mr. Burris, where do we go from here? Is all hope lost? Mr. Burris, you're on mute. You have to uh, unmute yourself. Well, I agree that all hope is, uh, is not lost. I look at the continuum of where we are in life and recognizing that a long way has traveled uh, since slavery, if you will, or before slavery. And that I see this as a continuum that I often refer to as a relay and that we are really running our part, our leg of this relay. I have a specialized practice where I'm dealing with police brutality, police misconduct, and sometimes employment. And so I understand that there are real issues related to it. And when, when George Floyd issue went down, I, I basically wondered whether this was a moment or a movement. And in part, it has become somewhat of a movement, but it's still somewhat of a moment as well. And I say that because there's been a, a steady backlash against some of the uh, protesting and, and, and good work that was being done. I will say this, around the country, notwithstanding the crit crit critical race theories, there's been a lot of efforts at reform in the police departments throughout this country. I will tell you that one of the major issues that we're dealing with, you've all heard about this, is qualified immunity that gives uh, protection to police officers. Some, a couple of states have essentially outlawed it and, and done away with qualified immunity, although the Supreme Court has not done so. 
I, I think that you have to be mindful of the fact that efforts along policing is very political. It becomes political in the sense you're talking about political leaders, you're talking about the police chief. I've had a number of departments where police chiefs have gone have changed as a consequence of work that we've been involved in. There has been reform that has taken place. It, it can be done, but it's not something that's going to be done overnight. I don't see this ending in my own lifetime and maybe not even some of yours, but progress can be made. So I don't think we should ever take a situation where all hope is lost because our ancestors did not. They didn't take anything that was lost. They found it, made something happen no matter what. And, and so it's up to us as well to continue to make something out of whatever we can and not be dissuaded because there are setbacks. There are going to be setbacks. I had a conversation yesterday with somewhere when we talked about it, it was 100 years from Dred Scott to the Board of Education, uh, to Brown versus the Board of Education. Think about what our African-Americans had to endure during that 100 years. And now that we have another Supreme Court that's contrary, that's uh, conservative, it may be another 150 or 100 years before it changes. That's why the Supreme Court appointment is important. So I don't believe in, in any way that hope is lost. It is, there's, you've got to keep be positive about these whole things and take the good when you can and make sure the negative do not overcome positive. I can only tell you this, in 30 years since I did the Rodney King case, and up until the time of George Floyd, there's been huge changes. And we're having convictions now that we've never had before. We're having prosecutions of police officers we never had before. And for me, I'm getting significantly higher verdicts in cases because serious cities understand that what they're doing in police cannot stand. And the police, and so, they, and so there are movements. Now, this is a limited area. I agree, because if you look at some of the employment things, you see that there's progress being made, but the progress, but there's setbacks. The point of the matter is hope is not lost. We have to keep forging ahead one step at a time. Do not be dissuaded by the negativism because there will always be that white supremacist, all that stuff cannot stop you from moving forward because at the end of the day, we owe it to our children and our grandchildren children to provide a better uh, a road for them, even though the road can be tough, but it was tough for our fathers and grandfathers and great grandfathers as well and grandmothers. So stay focused, I say. Thank you, Mr. Burns. We will continue to move forward. I'll turn it over to Mr. Evans for the next question. Uh, thank you so much. And I want to encourage the panelists, if you're looking at the chat, I've been trying to answer some questions, but there have been some questions directed at specific panelists. Feel free to chat it up uh, and we'll uh, get a copy of the chat as well, but feel free to chat with the uh, attendees. There's some great questions there. Well, our next question takes us uh, to the issue of discrimination against Black lawyers and Black judges. And I think some folks don't realize that Black people on a regular basis still today encounter discrimination. And the fact that we're lawyers and we're successful has not shielded us from discrimination because when people see us, they see a Black face. And I have shared in different uh, programs discrimination I have faced while driving. I have been stopped. Uh, while driving my car, uh, police asking me how could I afford the car I was driving, where did I get the car from, assuming that I couldn't possibly afford to be driving that particular car. I have been arrested at the courthouse uh, because the sheriff's deputies, this was in Sonoma County, uh, thought that I was impersonating a lawyer and did not believe that I was a real lawyer. And Black lawyers on a regular basis encounter questions from folks where they ask if we're a real lawyer. I can't even tell you how many times I've been asked that. I've been practicing almost 20 years, uh, leadership in numerous bar associations, partner at a firm, 
and I hear it over and over again, are you a real lawyer? Did you pass the bar exam? Did you really go to law school? Um, and so my question for the, for the panel, uh, and we're gonna begin with Mr. Maloof, is if you can provide us with one example where you were discriminated against as a lawyer. Well, you know, it, it happens every day and it happens so often it's hard to keep track of it. But I'm going to tell you one little story. It, it's not exactly discriminating against me, but I'm going to tell you the story anyway. As we all know, I'm, I'm a San Francisco public defender and San Francisco is one of the most progressive cities in the world. And I had a client, I don't remember her name. I say it again, I don't remember her name. I said one more time, I don't remember her name. I said it three times because somebody's gonna say, he said his client's name. No, I don't remember her name, but it sounded something like Chantal Jackson. So when you hear the name Chantal Jackson, you can kind of picture maybe what her race is. Well, Chantal was charged with the crime of the century. She broke her boyfriend's flower pots. She was mad at him. And she's 26 years old. They charged her with felony vandalism. So I'm in the back, I'm talking to the judge and I'm explaining, you know, she's a college student, she's 26, she's never been uh, arrested before. And these are just, you know, a dime a dozen flower pots. It, it shouldn't be a felony. It should be a misdemeanor and let the misdemeanor attorneys handle it. The judge looked at me and said, motion denied. Let's go out and call the case. So I go out and I step up to the podium and I call line 16, Chantal Jackson, and up came a bubbling, blue-eyed, blonde-haired white woman. And the judge looked down on the calendar and then he looked back up at me and he looked at Chantal and said, Chantal? And she says, yes, that's me. And the judge turned to me and said, oh, Mr. Maloof, I see what you are talking about. I'm gonna go ahead and reduce these charges to misdemeanors. So I say that story because as we all know, Dr. Martin Luther King stated in his famous I Have a Dream speech that one day people will be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. But even in San Francisco, the most progressive or one of the most progressive cities in the world, you have judges judging people based on what they look like and not based on the content of their character. So that's, that's my two cents. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Maloof. And uh, we're going to ask Mr. Holland to also share some of his experience. Thank you. I've been practicing about 49 years. So I've seen it uh, for this period of time, starting in San Francisco, Early on in my career, uh, anytime anything happened positively for you, then somebody must have done something inappropriate to give you that advantage. If the few black judges that we had at that time, uh, if you, I, I couldn't appear in front of them. 
because they he believed that that person would be favorable to me because of my skin. So it go it, it traveled on up to full 49 years for the most part that I can't really uh, appear before black judges because I know them. And so the inference is that I'm gonna get a favorable result, which of course is not true. But recently, not well, not that recent, but within the last couple of years, one of my colleagues went to court for me on a case management conference. She appeared, well, against a, an opponent one of the, from a, one of the large San Francisco law firms. This is in Alameda County. And so what happened was that the there was a, a date, a continuance date for a trial or some, some hearing. And the other lawyer said that he or his partner who was not there either would not be available on that date. So the judge said, pick another date. So another day was picked. So my colleague who was appearing for me said, Mr. Holland won't be available that day because he has a medical appointment. I want Mr. Holland to bring his medical records to me. So anyway, so my colleague, cause she comes back to me and she says, tell me what the judge did. So I call the judge up and uh, the judge says to the clerk, and when I asked to have speak with her, that she can speak with me because other counsel wasn't on the phone. So I tried to call him and get him on the phone, but anyway, uh, he didn't get on the phone. So what I did, I referred to the Council on Judicial Performance, or whatever council that you can complain on judges, I cannot sure of that, but I think that's what it was at that time. And uh, of course they had a hearing, they never called me, you know, and I, and I asked the clerk to give you know, to, to at that time to make a statement. I think we may have, may, may not, we may have court reporters in the court at that time, but we may not have. But anyway, I asked the clerk to make a statement uh, that this would happen. And she said she didn't remember. But anyway, that's that's just one example. But I've had uh, situations where most recently in a trial, the only trial during the pandemic that was a court trial because the judges allowed me a jury trial because uh, they used to have a, a domain web system here in Alameda County where there was a special number that you could make sure that your case was gonna be heard. And so you'd use that line, I, asked, I posted jury fees uh, through that particular outlet. And when it came for the trial, the judge says, oh, you to pay jury fees. So what happened, the judge tells me, oh, by the way, we stopped using that because it wasn't being used enough, that, that uh, connection. But anyway, so the, no jury trial. During the trial, on cross-examination of the, of the witness, the judge says to me, you can't cross-examine the witness. I said, well, this is cross-examination. What do you mean I can't cross-examine the witness? No, so yeah, it was, it was upsetting. But, you know, and of course, I guess you've asked, what did I do about it? Well, I talked to him, you know, I, but I, you know, I was, I knew it was going to happen, but I reported it. So I just, I didn't do anything else. But generally, I would be fighting it to the end, but I just, you know, I just didn't have energy at this, this time. And, you know, you make a, a really powerful point, and that is uh, when Black lawyers, when we experience discrimination, we don't always feel empowered to say something. When I'm pulled over by a cop who doesn't believe I can afford the car I'm driving, my goal is to get out of that interaction alive, right? I know what my rights are, I know who I am and all of that, but I don't wanna end up dead. I don't wanna end up another statistic. So you don't always feel empowered to speak out. When I've had clients um, tell me when they meet me for the first time, you don't sound black on the phone, I had no idea you were black, you don't really feel empowered to speak out then because you wanna preserve that uh, relationship. So this is where allies come in. I'm gonna pass the mic to uh, my good friend, Amira, to ask, uh, ask the next question. Thank you. 
In a June 2021 article entitled, New Data Reveals the Startling Mental Health Struggles of Attorneys of Color, author Laura Bagby notes that 31% of Black lawyers have stated that they have contemplated suicide. This is a significant increase from approximately 23% of Hispanic and Latino attorneys, 20% Asian attorneys, and 19.4% white attorneys. Why are nearly one-third of Black lawyers contemplating suicide, and what can we do to save them? And I'll start off with uh, Ms. Evans. Um, the suicide question, I'm not, I don't think I'm really qualified to answer that question, but I do know that being a lawyer, um, especially coming from a firm background, is very, very stressful. Um, going back to the other question, um, that we answered about just um, having to be better than just good. Um, you know, we always, they always say that, that as a black person, you can't just be good. You have to be excellent. You have to excel over everyone else. Um, mediocre is not um, gonna cut it. Um, even if you're doing the best, you know, like you're performing like everyone else, you still have to be better than everybody else. Um, coming from a firm background, just with billable hours, um, trying to um, get clients, fighting other lawyers in your firm about clients. I mean, it be, could be somebody uh, you met at, a, at an event, you um, signed the paperwork to, you know, this is your client, somebody, some older lawyer or something will come and, oh, I met that person 20 years ago. I want 30% credit or I want half credit of that. Um, is just a constant battle. Um, and just, you know, just the workload. Um, I mean, billable hours alone, you may still have the, you know, the work to do it. So billable hours might not be a big issue for you, but just the stress of litigation in general, I think, um, you know, ex parties, you might, you may think, oh, I have a light week or a light weekend. I don't have to work this weekend. And then somebody will say, oh, I'm going to go in ex party or serve some motion that you have to deal with um, over the weekend and stuff. So I know I had a lot of stress, um, working at the firm. I, I loved it. Um, but then it just came to a point where it was just time to make a change just based on where I am in my life now. Um, being a mother of a, a young, uh, little girl and, um, duties of a wife and things like that, that I just didn't want that lifestyle anymore. Um, so I went in house and, Although <clears throat> still a lot of work to be done, it's a different stress. I definitely don't have the type of stress I had when I worked um, at the law firm with all the billable hour requirements and trying to get clients and maintaining your clients and because all of that's gone now and um, I couldn't be happier. And I think as far as what can we do to save people, you always hear that term, um, checking or that phrase, check in with your strong friends. Um, Cause I know I'm a strong friend and I know I internalize a lot of things. I might not complain, <clears throat> I may keep things in. I mean, I haven't contemplated suicide but I will hold things in for a long time. Um, I'm not really one to complain about things. Um, and a lot of my friends are that way. So it's always good to check in with people, see how they're doing. Um, I know we do that a lot with my friends, you know, how are things going? How's your week going? Um, check, you know, look at verbal cues and 
um, you know, how people's facial expressions are looking. Um, or if you haven't heard from somebody in a long time, um, check in on them and see what's going on in their lives. And, you know, if you can help lighten the load sometimes, and that might mean babysit or, you know, bring dinner, send DoorDash over or something like that. But I think people are in general, whether you're at a firm or wherever, are just under a lot of stress and the pandemic hasn't helped um, with that. So, um, you know, check in with your strong friends. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Evans. That's really important to continue to check in on each other, no matter what, how we think of person. Uh, turn it over to Mr. Maloof. Yes, thank you. You know, just being Black in this country is a heavy but awesome burden to carry. And the challenges we face as lawyers, specifically in the criminal justice system, are enormous. There is a lot of implicit biases that are running strong in all aspects of the legal field. And as Kimberly stated, we have to be 10 times better. But even when we are 10 times better than our counterparts, we're considered to be mediocre or average. Now, of course, I'm not an expert in the field of psychology, but that is a heavy burden. And that could be why 31% of Black lawyers are have contemplated suicide uh, because just can you imagine being 10 times better, but then having to live with, yeah, I just mediocre. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Maloof. Yes. And now we'll turn to Mr. Holland. That's a very difficult question to answer as to why people contemplate suicide. I've had several lawyer friends who have who did commit suicide. And I've thought about the stresses that they had in their lives, the stresses that many of us go through, and what can cause that. But I think a lot of times don't, people don't realize I've been in court with judges. Uh, you think you want to, and you probably say he's picking on that person. You know, they ask them questions, they don't like the answer, they ask them another question try to make them look confused and, and that they don't know what they're doing. And that happens quite often. So, and you have to be very, very careful to not allow judges to intimidate you because all you got to do in many instances is just ask them how they're paying a race car. And everybody gets upset with you for saying that, but it's true. And a lot of times we don't want to say things in court because it may not be appropriate in our minds. But I have learned, I don't take much stuff. You know, I don't, you know, I don't have to, you know, what can you do to me? You know, yeah, you can refer me to the state bar, but you know, then they got to answer the question. I thought it was racial and they don't want to do much when they say that because it's the truth. But I'm saying that, that these, this job of being a lawyer is a tough job. And a lot of folks ought to really think about it before they take it on because it stress is unbelievable. You know, I, I thought, you know, I was thick skinned and you can get the best of me but you know, sometimes I get to think, well, wait a minute, you know. But my way of dealing with things, like many people, you get angry and you want to, you know, you want to retaliate, but you can't do it in court because they're always going to hold you in contempt and say things to you. But I remember, you know, like I remember lawyers like Clinton White. Clinton was one probably one of the best lawyers in this state. And if you, and unfortunately, I don't mean this to be just a joke, but 
if you were charged with murder, you go get Clint White, because that's how good he was. But I'm saying that I remember he he, he cursed the judge out, said something, a curse word about a judge, and they put him in in a holding cell, and he had to get someone to get him out. But he, you know, he was uh, a person that I use as a mentor in that sense because he's a very nice person, a very very help, helpful person, one of the outstanding lawyers. But I'm telling you that suicide is something that you can't, I can't, I can't really answer the question as I said. So I'll just leave it alone. Thank you for allowing me to try. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Holland. I really appreciate that. Um, add something really quick. Yes, Ms. Evans. To that, um, to this question, um, just this job can make you doubt yourself too. Um, I had a situation when, and I'm sure this is probably the, the truth with lots of firms. So you have to prepare when you're wanting to be partner, prepare this book, um, this document, answering questions. They, you know, research how many billable hours you had that year. If you had any clients, you're basically pumping yourself up in this article that you write or whatever. Um, so I had done all that, submitted my um, paperwork. And there's this one partner who I used to work for and we were cool. Like I was one of the people, like he'd walk around, hey, let's go grab a bagel or let's go to lunch. And then something shifted into this day. I don't know what it was, but he just turns his sights onto another attorney and basically wanted to disparage me for whatever reason. <clears throat> and um, I had turned in my paperwork for a partnership. They were going to announce um, where well, they're going to start researching and, and doing votes and stuff in the next week or so. Um, he says, oh, I want to take you to lunch. And at the time he was my team leader, take me to lunch. Um, I had no idea. And I'm thinking it was to help me with, um, you know, to kind of talk to me about the partnership, things like that. And he proceeds to tell me all this stuff about, oh, well, you're a good lawyer, but I don't think you've even scratched the surface of what you can do. And here I have been practicing 10 years. I got excellent results. My clients loved me. And I mean, that took me down so many notches for a long time. Like I, I was so defeated and to sit there for one, not know why I'm going to this lunch and then to not react. Cause I, you know, I had tears welling up, but I refused. I was like, you, you are not going to see me cry. Right. Um, but I was defeated for a long time after that. Um, and he basically told me in so many words, well, it's your decision, but basically that no partners were going to support me and that I should withdraw my application and try again the following year. Um, I thought about it over the weekend, talked to my husband about it. And without talking to any other partners, I did that. I did withdraw my application. Um, this other attorney who ended up being my mentor asked me several weeks later why I did that. And I told him what happened. And he said, uh, he didn't discuss this with anybody. It's my understanding you had supported the partnership. And I mean, it was, <laughs> it was really crazy. And I, I helped me get my confidence back. But even the following year, when I said we submitted, I heard that he really talked bad about me in the meeting when they had to do the vote. And fortunately, I had support of, you know, really big wigs and not just our office, but LA and New York. Um, but, you know, not everyone is going to be, even if you work at the same company, a firm, whatever, they're not going to have your back. They're not going to have your best interest at heart. And so that's, you know, thankfully I have a strong network, friendships, family, 
and foundation that that didn't just, I mean, although I was discouraged, um, he didn't break me. And I didn't just fall into despair and all that kind of stuff. It actually motivated me. But, you know, some people that aren't that strong or don't have that support, that could really turn someone into like some kind of tailspin and just make them not be able to, to recover. So I just wanted to put that out there, that little story. Ms. Evans, I really appreciate you sharing that story. I think we all can relate to that in any um, career. It goes even beyond being attorneys. I really appreciate that. I'll turn it over to Mr. Evans now for the next question. And sure, and before we go to the next question, I also wanna thank uh, Kimberly for sharing that because it was extremely powerful. And I just wanna tell anybody who's out there watching, and I know we have a sizable audience, uh, this is where the minority bars come in in hand. You know, if you need support, if there are no people of color at your firm, if there's nobody you can connect with, come to one of the minority bar associations and we'll provide that support that you're not getting at your firm. We'll provide that mentorship. And that's really what brought me to Charles Houston. I had had leadership positions in different majority bar associations. But I didn't feel like folks really understood me and I didn't feel like I could really express myself. Uh, and I was able to find that support and that love and that connection at Charles Houston and the other minority bar associations that are part of this program. So it leads us to our next question about the Supreme Court. It has been all over the news that President Biden uh, has announced and he's going to keep his campaign pledge to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. It's interesting to note that we have had a U.S. Supreme Court for 232 years, and in 232 years, no Black woman, regardless of her qualifications, was ever considered seriously to be on the court. And now we have the opportunity to choose from several very highly qualified Black women, all of whom are more qualified than many of their predecessors. And so my question is, why do you think it's important for a Black woman to sit on the US Supreme Court. Uh, and I am going to uh, begin with uh, uh, Ms. Johnson. Thank you. I guess first and foremost, because in 232 years, there has never been a black woman. So period, full stop. Um, you know, the question that we were, we were asked earlier about challenges and, and, and black women and certainly being in this profession, um, you know, I, I, I go back and think about certainly um, the Black women who ha have been the backbone of, of this country, um, carrying this country, certainly the Black women who fought, I think you said the first Black woman to pass the bar in California that happened in 1939? 1939? You know, when, when you think about history, when you think about this country, and when you think about things that Black people have been denied, education, housing, um, you know, employment, um, certainly, you know, higher education, voting, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. To not have that perspective sitting on the United States Supreme Court in the form of a Black woman is, is just, it's offensive, frankly. Um, having representation matters. 
it matters not just for women, it matters for men too. It matters for no matter what your sexual orientation is, it matters, right? To see a black woman sitting on the United States Supreme Court, the highest court in the land in this country, being able to offer her lens and her unique perspective. We are not a monolith, um, but certainly uh, having, I think of, of any of the candidates that have certainly been discussed uh, in the news recently, I, I think we would be well served having any of those women. They are all exceptionally well qualified. They are all dynamic in their own right. And they also happen to be black women. So it's so frustrating to hear the commentary about, um, well, you know, he's discriminating against others because he's signaling, singling out black women or why does it have to be a black woman? Well, well, why isn't she the most qualified? Why isn't she well qualified to be appointed to that position? And so it really just is, is another way that it diminishes our value, diminishes our voice, it diminishes our worth and our contributions that I think we all certainly have. And um, it's about time. We're long overdue. And I look forward to seeing a Black woman sitting on the United States Supreme Court. Amen. Uh, Bob Harris, I know you have some thoughts on this question. Yeah, I have some real thoughts. It would give us an opportunity to have, the, have a Black person on the United States uh, Supreme Court. And uh, it's clear that we don't have that representation now. But more importantly, there are so many Black women historically that have been qualified to be on the bench uh, on the Supreme Court. For example, uh, Constant Baker Motley. I mean, here's a woman who really exemplified excellence should have been appointed long time ago, but for white privilege, that is preventing blacks and others from being on the court, that would have happened. So I'm saying it is time, it is a past time that we got rid of white privilege and allowed black women to take their rightful uh, places in, uh, on the United States Supreme Court. And I am just so pleased that uh, uh, we will have a person nominated and confirmed very soon who happens to be black. And fortunately, a person who I believe will give us that black representation on the Supreme Court that we so desperately need. Yeah, and, and Bob, it, it kind of calls to uh, mind the phrase, and I'm going to teach some folks in the audience who probably have never heard this, all skin folk and kin folk. So just because yeah. somebody looks like this does not mean that they have the best interests of our community uh, at heart. So and, and Clash Thomas is one of those people. Clash Thomas is one. There you go. There you go. And I ain't scared to say it. Okay, okay. Um, I'll pass the, uh, the mic to uh, my good friend, Amar. But just before we do, I know Eileen actually just wrote a letter to President uh, Biden. Uh, Eileen, would you like to comment just very briefly on this issue? I know you just wrote the president on this. We we did. And uh, I have to admit that, that I was supported by um, my good colleague, uh, 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 I'm sorry, my my brain it, a, after a certain time is is thinking just about work. So Judge Harvin Forte, 
<laughs> Judge Harvin Forte and uh, Ryan Harrison. And uh, we wanted to recognize Justice Kruger as a potential candidate for the, the, um, the United States Supreme Court. Um, we felt that, you know, she has been a spectacular jurist at, at the California Supreme Court level. Um, she's led a life devoted to public service. Um, she has worked at the D United States Department of Justice. Um, you know, she, she goes on and on and on with all of the accolades uh, that are in her career. And um, we felt that it was important also to have a Black woman from California, um, because we also believe that oftentimes the voice of California or the voice of, you know, potentially the West Coast is not necessarily um, heard. And, and, and that's, a, that's a voice that needs to be hear, heard as well. And so um, we've, we are very familiar with Justice Kruger. We've read uh, her opinions. We, we know who she is. And uh, we felt like she would be a prime candidate. Um, we hope that she's on the short list. Thank you, Eileen. I'll uh, pass the mic to Amira. Thank you, Mr. Evans. Next question. All of you have had successful careers. There are a lot of young lawyers and law students watching this program. What advice do you have for the next generation of lawyers who aspire to be like you? I'm gonna start with Ms. Schaller. Um, so what advice would I give you all? Um, go after your passion. Absolutely go after your passion. And I say that because um, th there are so many opportunities to go after finances. There are so many opportunities to go after economic success. But at the end of the day, you have to be absolutely happy about what you are doing. And the only way that that's going to happen is by going after what you're truly passionate about, whether it is um, representing um, criminal defendants, whether it is representing our community in some other manner. Um, this career choice is a very difficult one, as you've heard. And since we are doing something that is intellectually challenging, emotionally challenging, you, my advice to you would be that you should definitely go after something that is going to give you some pleasure every day because you're going to be faced with so many other obstacles. So um, that would be my advice to young attorneys. Thank you, uh, Ms. Schaller, for that. I'll turn the back over to Mr. Evans. Uh, thank you so much. The next question focuses on uh, a phrase, imposter syndrome. I'm sure folks have heard of it. Many minority lawyers, other lawyers too, but many minority lawyers in particular have uh, grappled with imposter syndrome, which is defined as an internal experience of believing that you're not as competent as others perceive you to be. Uh, Kimberly, you talked about this a little bit when you were talking about the partnership issue that you dealt with. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, imposter syndrome? For me, it mostly had to do with the fact that, well, early on in my career, I um, it wasn't really that I didn't think I was competent, but it was, I would doubt myself a lot. Um, and a lot of it was because I was, um, 
I, I dealt with a lot of trial by fire. So I remember I went to a, my first arbitration and I had, didn't know what it was, didn't know what I was going to do. And the attorney, my partner just said, just sit at the last chair at the end of the table and do what everybody else does. Um, and so a lot of times, and I think at that time I sat at the chair that I thought was the end and it ended up being the first chair. So I went first, but, um, I just remember, uh, when I would get around more experienced lawyers and it mostly was a, with cases It didn't necessarily have to do with, um, the lawyers in my firm, but it would be with, um, cases with more experienced lawyers. Um, I would just have this feeling of, of doubt sometimes, I remember specifically um, one of the first cases where I was lead counsel uh, taking a deposition of a plaintiff. It was a multi-car accident. It was about five uh, parties in the case. And so I was taking lead. Um, and no, and it's crazy because I think, look back at it. No one was objecting. It's not like anyone was beating me up or anything when I was asking the questions. But I guess it's just because they looked bored. And then it's funny because as I got more experienced lawyer, I, I probably was looking bored in depositions too, but, um, you know, one was looking out the window, uh, one was on their phone. And so I just felt like, did I ask all the right questions? Did I go into their medical history enough? And, um, because I was the only black attorney, sometimes you don't want to talk to a non-black person. I'll just say a white person about, the doubts you have or feeling, you know, not good enough or you're not doing a good job um, because you think that they're going to hold that against you. Um, and at that time, my, my partner, who I mostly reported to, was out doing something else that day. And so my best friend, who also is a lawyer, she was a, a lawyer at another firm, um, I called her during a break because I was on the verge of tears and I think I did cry on the phone because I just felt like I wasn't doing a good job and I didn't know what I was doing. And, um, you know, she talked me off the ledge or whatever. And I went back and finished up the deposition. Um, and then I told my partner who came the, back the next day, kind of just how I felt. He's like, oh, I'm sure you did fine, whatever. But at first he did seem concerned. Like, well, did you ask this? Did you ask that? Did you ask this? And then when the deposition transcript came in, he read it, he was like, you were tripping over nothing. You did great. I mean, and I think it was my first deposition. It was like my first or second deposition. Um, so, you know, that's just something that I had to deal with as a new lawyer. And I definitely overcame it. The more experience um, I got as a lawyer. Um, but, you know, we're all competent. Um, and, you know, it's just, you know, make sure you have someone, if it's not someone in your firm or your office where you, where you are, find somebody else. Um, you know, for me, for a long time, it was someone who didn't even work at my firm. They worked at another firm. Um, later on, it became a very unlikely person. I mean, I was, um, you know, in my, I think, late 30s, and my mentor ended up being a white man who was, I think, in his 60s. That was like my biggest ally at my firm. So, I mean, anyone that you feel that has your best interests at heart, you know, that's someone you should be talking to on a regular basis to help you overcome come those times when you feel that you're not competent or you're doubting yourself. Thank you. And Rosenia, I know you also have some thoughts uh, on this topic as well. Um, yeah, I do have some thoughts. Uh, 
just kind of, I'm going to kind of circle back a little bit to Nedra, the question that you had presented to Nedra about what you can be to be like us. Everyone on here has done community service. So, so to me, above all is service. You're looking for people who are not just being successful in their legal practice or in their careers. They have dedicated their lives to the community and serving our community and making sure that we are at the highest level on all levels. So that is one thing that we definitely have in common is that you as young lawyers or law students should look at being a service or a servant to your community first and not just to your career. Um, now back to the, was it the imposter syndrome? As we kind of had the pre-discussion, I told you I've kind of never kind of had that syndrome. And I think it kind of goes back to, I was thinking about it today a little bit. I've always wanted to be a lawyer since I was five years old. Um, my, 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 my fantasy person was Perry Mason. That kind of ages me, but I knew I wanted to be a lawyer and nothing was gonna stop me to be a lawyer. My parents always told me I was, I was always available to be in any space that I wanted to be. That was confirmed in growing up in the Berkeley school system. They fortunately took out people who they believe had high potential, put us on a track to be successful. That was confirmed in college about going to law school and getting into law school. Now law school may have derailed me a little bit because I did get off track in law school and it made me feel like, you know, the first, first quarter grades came out and I'm like, okay, maybe I don't belong here. <laughs> maybe I did make a mistake. Um, but then I had to realize I had to look into myself to see who I was and knew I needed to do something different and something better. Um, it wasn't going to be as easy as undergrad or high school or whatever that it got me to getting out of law school. And so, but I do believe, and then when I finally did get a career, I didn't go in-house, which I think saved my mental health and my career. I don't believe I was built to be in a firm. So I went to literally in-house, I lucked out and got a job in-house where my law degree was valued. It was, saw, it was sought as something as a privilege and be valued to utilize at that company. So I was given opportunities just because I had a law degree to be more successful than I think I would have been in a firm. So honestly, I mean, kind of listening to Kimmy's stories, I don't know if I would have survived daily beatings or what, I'm not beatings, but like just criticism on a regular basis of my writing style, my presentation style, my ability to do whatever I needed to do on a regular basis. So thank God, whatever the career path I took or chose didn't put me in positions where I had to have criticism on a regular basis. Not saying you don't get criticism in the corporate world, but you do, but I don't think as bad as in, um, in a law firm. So I just never kind of had the imposter syndrome. I've always felt like I belonged in any space I was in. We're going to move on to the next because the next two questions are so important and we're going to give everyone a chance to respond. And I'll warn people, we're going to run like five minutes over, not more than that. Uh, but I'm going to pass the mic to Amira uh, so that we can get through just the last two questions. They're so important. As past, bar, as past Black Bar Association's president, what advice do you have for current, current Black Bar Association leaders about how we can better serve the community? And I'm gonna start this question off with Mr. Burris. Question. Uh, I think that any leader of any association, particularly bar association, has to have a vision as to what they would like to accomplish during that period of time that they may be president. 
And that's something that should be thought about before they became president. Would they want to be more community service? Want to be more in politics? They want to be about uh, improving the lawyers uh, in the association? Whatever it happens to be. Um, but you need to have a vision for it. And then you have to work with your staff, your, your board members and your other lawyers uh, to help carry out that particular uh, plan or vision that you have. So to me, it's a matter of cooperation. It's also having leadership skills to put forth a plan that you want to see come to fruition during the period of time that you're president. It can be done, but that's what you've got to have a plan for that and a vision and a willingness to work hard and, and, and do the little things that, that you may think that someone else is supposed to do and they don't do them. You then have to pick up the pieces and carry forward because no one will ultimately make it happen better for you than yourself. So as a president, that's what you got to do, it seems to me. Mr. Maloof, I know you have something to add to this. Yeah, I sure do. Um, <clears throat> you know, Denzel Washington, uh, well, let me go back. Let me say this. We can't be afraid to fight the status quo. And um, we can't be afraid to hang out with people we don't know, make others feel that they um, want to be involved. We should go out on a limb and, and say hi to the young students, the new attorneys, when I was a young law student, I actually worked in John Burris's office and he made me feel wanted. He made me feel like, hey, you know, John Burris was as famous back then as he is now. And he knew my name, wow. And so when you make people feel wanted and look where I am today. Um, so to the leaders of the Black Bar Associations, you know, don't hang out with the same crowd, break, you know, fight the status quo, um, meet people that you don't know, especially the new lawyers and the new students. Thanks. Thanks. To uh, Mr. Harris. As the former leader of three national organizations, I think it's important <clears throat> to remember what uh, Charles Hamilton Houston said, when he said, a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. So when you become a leader of a bar association or of any association, you have to remember that you are leading because of a commitment and because that it is important to stay focused so that you can do the best job that you can do. Thank you. Ms. Johnson. Don't be afraid to, I would say, follow your vision. Um, if you have new ideas, new ways of doing things, try them. Um, I, I would say that that would be my best piece of advice. Um, there are a lot of, I think, new leaders coming up and, and tradition is certainly important and valued. Um, but, but I also think um, a fresh perspective is, is also needed and necessary. So um, don't be afraid to, to speak up and have vision and, and, and see your vision through. Ms. Schaller. 
Mr. Harris said something very important, um, significant as it relates to the Charles Houston Bar Association. And that is that we are to be social engineers. And so I would just say uh, that we need to keep a pulse on the issues that are impacting our community, not just our legal community, not just our legal profession, but those things that are impacting our community. We have to make sure that the movements of the day are more than just a movement. Um, so we have to stay connected to those grassroots organizations that are making changes, that want to make systemic changes. And we have to be the voice for our community. That's what, that's the advice that I would give you. That's what I would say that we should be doing as bar associations. Um, make sure that our lives are not neglected nor ignored, but make sure that our voices are heard and we are more than just a movement. Thank you, Ms. Holland. Mr. Holland? I think we have to keep in mind public service. I am president of the San Francisco, the Oakland branch of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. I've had a wonderful legal career, but a concern I've always had was, how did I get where I am? People died for my right to vote. People died for me to go to school. People died for me to eat at lunch counters with other folks. I'm saying that we, some of us have forgotten about that. You got to give back to the community. You have that legal training and we have a population that's thirsty for to have legal representation, but things have changed significantly since when I first started practicing because most of us, or many of us at that time, not most, many of us at that time recognized public service and they, con they contributed. We have a difficult time now getting people to volunteer, to do things for other folks. And it's just unbelievable the kinds of problems that I have to deal with in our community. I mean, from schools to prisons, to, to, to stores, to jobs, any, just any, everything imaginable. And we need more lawyers who can take some extra time and give back to the community because you owe them. And if you forget that, need that we have, and you don't want to be involved in public service, something's wrong with you. Yeah, you are a parasite. Thank you. Ms. Cummings? Um, just to iterate what everyone else said, definitely community service above all. And I believe someone had mentioned follow your passion. I believe a law degree is an avenue to any type of job you want. I didn't take a normal career path. Don't look at, because I went to law school, I passed the bar, I must be a lawyer, I must work at a firm, I must work at a corporation. That law degree can lift, break glass ceilings, put you in places that you have never imagined. So take your imagination, take your bar exam, take, take that degree and figure out what you want to do in life and look at your passion while you do your community service. Thank you, Ms. Cummings. And we'll end with Ms. Evans. One has already said, um, but <clears throat> spend some time really understanding the mission of the organization and make sure your vision aligns with that. Thank you, Ms. Evans. And now to you, Mr. Evans. Uh, thank you so much. So this brings us to our last question and we're about to wrap up. I do apologize for running a couple minutes over, but it bring us, brings us full circle. As we began the program, I showed you those critical race theory maps where we have continue to see an expansion of bans on having the very conversation that we had tonight 
in public schools and public universities and in public places of work. And so my, my final question, and we don't need necessarily everybody to answer, is why are programs like what we had tonight important? Why should we be talking about black history and the history of Asian people and Latin uh, ex uh, Hispanic people and Native American people, LGBTQ people, people of color and their contributions. Does anybody want to uh, have some words on why these conversations are important? I would, black history is American history. Not to teach it should be a crime. Well said. Um, any other final thoughts before we wrap up uh, this evening? I, I go along with John Burris. I, I thought I knew my history and I thought I knew California history and I learned a lot tonight. So I'm going to be reading the handout a little bit better. You can't you can't repeat our history enough for us to learn it and understand it. And you learn something more and more every day, how important your people are. So you will never have the imposter syndrome no matter where you go in the world. I think it's very, very important to remember your history because we have come a long, long way. You know, you know, a lot of our folks don't want to talk about slavery and discrimination and segregation, those kind of things. But you have to remember what happened. It's something that you always should keep in mind. The Jewish folks remember the Holocaust and they, and they want you to remember too. So I'm telling you, history can get lost. We can forget how it used to be and how it was, but if you don't talk about it, and keep it up in front of your mind, then you'll start forgetting about it and think it never happened. And we can't allow that, we cannot allow that. So please remember your history. Amen. Well, thank you everybody for being part of this program. Uh, again, uh, for those who are seeking MCLE credit, we'll be in touch with all of those who responded to the polling questions uh, to help you get that, that credit. Uh, please look at the written materials, which will be emailed to everyone that provides additional uh, Black history information that we didn't get to. Uh, Eileen, I, I saw your hand up. Just real quick as well. Uh, I gave everyone the information about the California Association of Black Lawyers, and we are wanting members to step forward and help. We've got a, a legislative day coming up where we're going to actually meet with our senators and assemblymen, assembly members in uh, Sacramento. And we would love to have you there to understand what legislation we're tackling and also uh, our cable conference. We are going to have MCLEs. We would love assistance in putting those together, several events, a judge's luncheon, uh, a gala. So if you are at all interested in learning more about cable and knowing the, the, the presidents that are here, all of them had cable conferences and, and uh, similar legislative days. Um, this is a phenomenal time. And your, your participation in our organizations uh, make the organization successful. Amen. Well said. Uh, so thanks again, everybody, for being part of this event. Uh, feel free to join any of the minority bar associations where you have a home. Uh, we're here to love you and support you and uh, keep you strong. And thanks again to our amazing all-star panel. Love all of you. I appreciate you for being part of this. Uh, I am gonna copy all the questions from the chat so that we can make sure that we keep in touch with everybody. This program was recorded and will be available. Keep a watch on your email um, because we have some other great programs that we'll keep you informed with. Have a great night, everybody. Thank you.